everyone, and we are live, not on Facebook. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the Jonathan Kogan Show. Super, super excited. I have an amazing guest, an amazing person, a, um, believe it or not, hard to find, a truth teller, and just a person who's doing incredible work. Um, you may or may not have seen her on YouTube, uh, Dr. Kelly Victory. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me, Jonathan. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've just a little context. I've messaged everybody in the world to come on. And Dr. Dr. Victory Kelly has always responded to my messages and um, has just always been kind and actually listened to the podcast and gave me feedback, even though I thought she was saying it was good, but didn't mean it. But she is a bold <laughs> person and tells it how it is. And uh, she makes the sensors go off as well. So, um, uh, Dr. Victory, how, um, you know, I, I don't like giving uh, an intro that I read. Um, so who are you? Um, what have you done professionally? And how did you end up all the way, you know, on this podcast or on the battlefield of truth? Sure. Well, thanks very much for having me. Um, I am by training a, a residency trained and board certified trauma and emergency physician. Uh, I practiced, I had a standard hospital based trauma practice for many, many years and then branched into mass casualty and big disaster work. Um, I have decades of experience in public health as well as postgraduate training in public health uh, from places like the Harvard School of Public Health uh, and had some pandemic experience actually as, as well. I was at the helm of some Fortune 100 companies during the SARS-CoV-1 uh, pandemic back in 2003. Um, I got thrust into the limelight here of um, the COVID-19 pandemic because very, very early on, I was an outspoken critic, frankly, of the way that it was being handled and questioned within uh, days, really, of us learning about COVID, uh, some of their narrative, uh, including the fact that it supposedly had come from a, uh, a wet market uh, in China, and we can talk more about that. I questioned very, very early on um, things like masking and the totally made-up construct of social distancing. I had grave concerns about the vaccines before they ever were uh, launched onto the public, and on and on. So in doing that, interestingly, for the first time in my career, and I've been practicing medicine for more than 30 years, uh, for the first time in my career, there was this uh, backlash that was fascinating. And uh, rather than open dialogue happening very quickly, um, anybody, there weren't many of us in those first weeks and months, but anybody who dared to ask a question was derided and ridiculed and, and censored and canceled and all of these things, which only heightened my belief that frankly, I was directly over the target. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, I want to start off with a different question, because you said that that pushback, right, when you get that type of massive pushback, like I'm thinking of, I'm not a physician and just asking questions like, not only don't ask it, but you can't even be on the platform sort of right. Like it, to me, it just made me think, okay, I should go to all the places they tell me not to listen to because something's going yeah. on here. So yeah. was that pushback? Like, was that even from your peers that You've had, you know, other physicians that are friends and, you know, people, colleagues, or was this more pushback from like the big pharma and government bureaucracies and things like that? Well, great question. It was inexplicable and totally unprecedented 
that my own colleagues, who I really hold significantly accountable for this debacle, they were doing things that absolutely defied logic. My own colleagues wearing masks, for example, and I would say to them, you know a mask doesn't stop the spread of a respiratory virus. I sat next to you in virology. Like, you know better than this. Why are you doing this? And they would come up with all of these convoluted explanations. And I think really what happened, Jonathan, was that the vast majority of the medical community drank the Kool-Aid because they were also in fear. They're all, they we're all physicians, but not all physicians are trained in crisis in mass casualty, in big disaster. And your average internist, pediatrician, radiologist was also a human being who was being driven into the basement of fear, the basement figuratively and literally. They were being told, there's a chance, a good chance you're going to get this and you're going to die. You know, your spouse is going to die. Your parents are going to die. Your children are going to die. And people panicked and people do not make good decisions when they are operating out of fear. So unfortunately, as smart as some of these people may be in practicing medicine, they couldn't depersonalize it. They, they took it on and were in their own state of fear and panic and started doing things that defied logic. When they launched this concept of social distancing is when I really started to lose it. Um, Social distancing, I, as I said, I have years and years of, of training and experience as a clinician, uh, many, many, many years in public health, and I defied people. I said, come into my library, pick any book on public health, pandemics, epidemiology, virology, infectious disease, and show me where the term social distancing appears in the index. Are you it saying doesn't. it's made up? It's made up, <laughs> totally made up. So I'm saying, yet at the same time as I'm reporting this, saying we've got every mom and pop shop and Walmarts and the Safeway grocery store putting stickers, one-way stickers on the floor and things telling us where the circle we need to stand in and plexiglass. Oh, my Lord, plexiglass shields. Yeah, because that's going to stop a respiratory virus. Isn't that worse? Because, uh, like, the air doesn't, like, cycle? It, Correct. And it goes up and over. And I mean, this is so I would have these conversations with my colleagues and say, um, let's review how this works. But it was gone. It was swirling in ever tighter circles down the drain. And no matter what I said, it was it just was met with, as I said, derision and ridicule and um, oh, my God. And then that dovetailed in. To what was happening with the government because very quickly, very early on, we were being chastised, threatened, um, you know, by our governing bodies, meaning the different boards of medicine, the CDC very quickly, there was no question. Uh, the federal government very quickly was working with, uh, you can use the word collusion, that's, you know, but they, they were working hand in glove with big tech to try to shut down um, the, these, this narrative, anybody who was questioning anything from, you know, masks to social distancing to vaccines or anything else. So it really took on a life of its own. Um, I think the important thing about what you are doing and what others who have a voice, have a platform, um, can do is we 
can't ignore this. We have got to do the deep dive uh, postmortem on this pandemic so that it never happens again. The problem with this pandemic wasn't a virus. The problem with this pandemic was the response. And we have devastated not only this country, but the globe um, with these these horrible response measures, and that's independent even of getting into the vaccine issue, just the response of lockdowns, school closures, all of this stuff has absolutely devastated a generation and and destroyed the economies, not just of our country, but of others. And, and, and just even like the lockdowns and her, you know, we say, you know, we do it for grandma, but whose grandma are we talking about? Cause in third world countries with the supply chain, they like, like $2 a day, then that goes away. And there's now, right. you know, r- risks of famine. And it's all, and then the collusion part, it's actually coming out as of, I think yesterday with those reports with the DHS and Facebook, mm-hmm. and they had portals Correct. specifically to gate, to basically enforce right. this narrative, which is not the narrative of, it was regardless of truth. It was just narrative is the most important thing. Yes. Like you have to stay with what we're saying, how dangerous that is, how it's most dangerous when it comes to public health of all things. And so there's a couple of, there's a lot of things I want to ask, but as someone who wants to have, wants to listen to public health officials and wants to listen to all physicians, there's a lot of people, actually, before I go to this, the fear. So you chalk up that all to fear. So now a lot of time has passed. So mm-hmm. is that fear still there? And if it's not, then why are things happening? Like we just talked prior, which was like Dr. Peter McCullough is losing his, you know, uh, uh, board uh, certification license, whatever you mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Um, why? What's the excuse now? Or what's the reason now? Great. Well, a couple things. Number one, you know, to, to quote Mark Twain, it's easier to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled. Um, people don't like to acknowledge that they were duped. So because cognitive dissonance, the concept of cognitive dissonance, people don't want to see what's right in front of their eyes if it makes them appear in a bad light or it sheds, you know, reflects poorly on their own decision making skills, for example. People don't like to feel that they were a fool. There are a few people who come out and admit it. You've got like a Dan Bongino who will come out and openly say, got vaccinated, worst decision of my life. I thought I was doing the right thing, but I didn't do my own research. I didn't look at the data. I didn't ask questions. I just lined up and I did it. Mistake. He's a rare bird. Most people won't do that. Then on top of it, I think that there are many people who in this pandemic became intoxicated by the power. There are people who really liked this newfound authority, this ability to direct where people go, where they don't go, if they can work, if they can go to school, if they can you know, keep their business alive. There are people who are really intoxicated by that. There's unbelievable corruption between many, many of our of our public agencies, the CDC, the FDA and Big Pharma, people making millions of dollars, including none other than Anthony Fauci. Okay, the conflicts of interest are very, very deep. I think that many of our governing boards, what happened is happening currently with Dr. Peter McCullough, is absolutely unconscionable. Uh, he still has his medical license, but to explain to your listeners, for somebody who is stripped of their board certification, that will mean generally you will lose your hospital privileges. 
The hospitals won't keep you on staff, so you can't admit patients any longer. And the vast majority of insurance companies, the third-party payers, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Anthem, Aetna, won't reimburse you if you're no longer board certified. So you fundamentally destroy someone's ability to earn a living. I guarantee you, and Peter McCullough is fighting back, there are many of us behind him, but the wheels of justice are slow. Uh, this will, I can guarantee you, end up at the Supreme Court. This will end up getting fought out ultimately at the highest level, but you're talking about things that are going to be years in the making and the amount of damage we are doing in the meantime you and I were talking just before we went on about what this means for patients. You know, we have in the, I, I'm actually recording today from uh, California. I don't have a California medical license, but I spent a lot of my time here. California just passed this insane law, AB 2098, that fundamentally criminalizes any physician who says anything against the accepted quote narrative. So, any of the things I'm saying right now about the vaccines or about the failed public health policy or about uh, the effectiveness of certain drugs like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, all of those things. If I had a license in California, I would most certainly lose it because of this new law. It's a criminal action fundamentally to say these things because they go against the narrative. So put yourself in a, the position now of a patient. You're a patient in California. You go to your doctor and your doctor tells you, Jonathan, here's what I would do. Here's what I, here's my assessment and here's my course of action. Do you really trust that doctor anymore? Is that doctor telling no. you that because that's what he or she really believes? Because that's what the data really show. That's what the studies really, you know, would, would direct you to do. Or is it simply because that guy, uh, is scared to lose his license? This I is mean, really bad. Th this is horrible from a patient's perspective absolutely terrifying are, are you are, are, maybe i just don't know and it's being censored so well are there a lot of people speaking out whether it's physicians or i mean quite frankly anybody which would be patients in california or are you like appalled or shocked that people aren't outraged by this because this is if you would have told me that this could have happened three years ago right i kelly i would have like just I was, I would have just said you're an idiot. Like, this is crazy. Right. Like, what right. are you, are there a lot of people speaking out or are we missing, like, I don't know, a couple million people on this field? I don't understand. Well, I, I hate to say it because I told you, I, I am not, um, uh, generous with my fellow physicians who aren't speaking up. Yet there are some people speaking up, but not nearly enough. People should be outraged. Patients sort of shrug their shoulders and aren't jumping in. Anyone who is aware of this, should be speaking out. I tell people all the time, and I don't mind making the analogy. If you're not speaking out, now you know, if you've ever wondered to yourself what you would have done in Nazi Germany, now you know. Because that is what, this is how it happens. They'll come for you next. They might be coming for me right now, but ultimately they will come for you. And oh, they're coming for you, have, Kelly, for sure. Oh, they've been... <laughs> They happen. I mean, I've been, I was one of the first who was censored. You know, I was, I, uh, back in July of 2020, I was the first, love them or hate them. Uh, I'm, there was the first, uh, co-plaintiff with Donald Trump 
in his class action lawsuit against big tech. He uh, contacted me and said, would you be willing? I want some private sector people, uh, some people who aren't the president of the United States <laughs> who have been absolutely censored because I had been shut down very early on from YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You know, I became sort of the, you know, ground zero. In fact, most people, if they would even say that they're about to do an interview with Dr. Kelly Victory, their feeds would get shut off. You know, I, I do shows all the time and, and it's kind of a joke. It's just like, you know, we You're start terrifying. our watches like how long will it stay up? Ooh, <laughs> we made it for four minutes and 27 seconds, you know, um, but that truly to, to quote a military adage, you know, you take the most heat when you're directly over the target. Um, there's no question that they were quick, you know, following me and, and others. But I think that we have got to, people have got to speak out. Um, there are a group of us who are trying just over this issue with Dr. Peter McCullough. As you said, you know, one of the most highly published cardiologists uh, in the world. Uh, he's been a thought leader. He has a perfect clinical record. Um, you know, he's he's authored thousands of journals, uh, you know, written books, has on been on staff and, and a professor of medicine for decades. They've stripped him of his board uh, certification. We are asking not only physicians to quit, to, to terminate their membership in the American uh, medical, in the in those boards, to say, go to hell, we don't need you, we are dropping, you know, we'll, 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 you know, show with our wallets, we will stop paying our dues, and we are asking patients to speak out, to write letters uh, to the boards and say, this is unconscionable, you have shaken our confidence in our physicians, not because... Uh, because of what they have said about COVID, but because we now have to question whether or not any of them have integrity or they're simply, you know, saying the party line. They're simply doing what they need to do, saying what they need to say so they can continue to pay their mortgages. I mean, you, you even have a, I mean, this is, this, the whole thing is so, it's so insane, which is, I, I believe, was it you were in the hospital when the vaccine rolled out and you're literally allergic to something that's yeah. in it and they're like, ah, well, let's just wing it, you know, not whatever, like something like that. Exactly. Yeah. I had a, I had a bad orthopedic injury and was hospitalized for surgery. And, you know, when you go in, they take, they write your allergies, get written and, you know, emblazoned in red on the front of your chart so everybody can see them. And it's written in a beauty. On your wristband will have your allergies. Well, I have only two allergies, and, and one of them is to polyethylene glycol, which is a key ingredient in the vaccines. It was one of my concerns of, of many about the vaccines because polyethylene glycol allergy uh, is, isn't uncommon, and people who have that allergy are highly allergic. You can have anaphylaxis to it, and I have. So it's on my chart, and so they would say to me, you know, I've, I, hundreds of people, everyone from the nurses to the surgeons to the anesthesiologists, everyone's saying, you know, you need to get your COVID vaccines. And I said, have you looked at the front of my chart? Okay. Not only have I already had COVID and recovered. Okay. Not only am I, you know, fit and otherwise healthy and I'm thinking I can pretty much handle it, but I happen to be allergic to one of the key ingredients. And they would say to me, literally, don't worry about it. If you have a problem, that you're in the hospital. So if you have anaphylaxis, we'll be able to treat it. I'm like, you're an idiot. You're a moron. But, you, you, you're but an idiot. 
according to Anthony Fauci, you know, there's no natural immunity, so you couldn't have had that it, from recovering, it, right? It, exactly. So, <laughs> so not only are they denying my natural immunity, but all of a sudden they're going to ignore my allergy. If I if I'd had penicillin as an allergy there, and somebody had suggested, you know, we're going to give you penicillin, they would lose their license. I mean, you would never willingly, knowingly give a patient something to which they have, a, you know, a uh, an identified severe allergy. So, so why this is it just, different with the vaccine? It's only because people have lost their collective minds. Truly, this is we we are recommending vaccines that don't work. I mean, and this is not just my opinion. They do not stop you from contracting COVID. I knew that early on, and now you know they openly admit that. They said they the, never tested it for transmission. Well, they, they never tested it for transmission. Two different things. There's oh. number one, does it stop you from getting these? Remember early on, oh, if you take these, you won't get it. If you take it, and I'm saying that's ridiculous. It's they are not the efficacy is going to fall within a matter of weeks, which it did. Um, you know, first to 70%, then to 40%, now to negative efficacy, meaning the, the data are irrefutable. If you have been multiply vaccinated, you have a significantly higher risk of contracting COVID than if you'd never been vaccinated at all because of the nature of these vaccines. And I predicted it's called original antigenic sin. It's because we they created these vaccines based on that one little spike protein and that one little spike protein was absolutely predicted to mutate. It did. It mutated away. And now people are creating the wrong antibodies. Um, so you have negative efficacy. On top of it, they never tested whether or not it would stop you from transmitting it to others. And remember, stopping transmission from you to somebody else was the entire basis of the mandate. What's well, the only reason you know, there should be a mandate? They, no, a government should intervene to make to be this like angel that says we don't want your symptoms to be as bad. It's literally only if there's a transmission aspect. It, you can't pre, exactly right? right, and that was borne out during the smallpox outbreak in yeah. 1905. A, you know, court case in the United States that says a government can only mandate a vaccine if that vaccine will prevent you from spreading it to others because it's for the good of the public health. They never tested for that. And furthermore, we know that the vaccines don't stop transmission. So the concept of a mandate, as you rightly point out, it's my it's up to me. It's my personal decision if I want to take something that may or may not decrease the severity of my illness. I might point out, by the way, there isn't a single study that actually shows that it decreases the severity of the illness, despite the fact that they say that every five okay. seconds. But the reality is there isn't a study that shows that. But Nevertheless, it's up to me. It'd be like you saying to me, you know, if I've got a cold that I must use Afrin or I must take Sudafed or I must, because you'll feel better, Kelly. Well, <laughs> so it's up to me whether or not I want to do that. It doesn't affect you. So Crazy. What? All right. <laughs> then what do you, then, all right. So, I mean, I've done a lot of deep dives on like, there's like Karen King. So there's people saying, you know, what's going on with these, something has to be that's non-conspiratorial with these vaccines. If you're telling me it doesn't stop transmission, it wasn't even, there's no study that says it makes your uh, symptoms less, is that right. what, or, or, you know, that's not correct. as sick, which is which correct. is what it, it turned into after the transmission was correct. debunked, whatever you want to say. Right. What's going on, Kelly? 
What's going on here? Why do they want everyone well, to have it, including treating a seven-year-old the same way as a 77-year-old? Do you have right. any, and you've talked to tons of smart people. And is there, are you formulating a hypothesis here? Is there a collective hypothesis that's, that's at stake? Like, where are we? I, I think that you're, you're really hitting on the million dollar question. Um, I think I would be hard pressed at this point, November, 2022. And I think anyone who's eyes are wide open, would be hard-pressed not to come to the conclusion that there's something else other than just money. For the longest time, I really believed it was about money, and that's certainly a, a, a big player. Uh, there are people, many people, who have made billions, with a B, of dollars on this vaccine. And there's a reason why you know they didn't want us to use things like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin readily available, dirt cheap, highly effective uh, medications for COVID because they had to say there's no other treatment because that's the only way you can get the emergency use authorization. If there are other treatments out there, you would never have gotten the EUA. And as of today, all of these vaccines are still only under an emergency use authorization. None of them are FDA approved, not one. So first, I thought it was really just about the money. Really, I think there are other things going on, a couple of other things. It's multifaceted. Number one, there are a group of people, there's an entire movement of people, uh, including people like Bill Gates, who desperately wanted to create a common mRNA platform. They've tried for decades. They haven't been able to do it. mRNA could be very useful in doing lots of different things, not just vaccines. So I think, number one, they desperately wanted to make mRNA a household word, make it absolutely accepted. That's something that, yes, everybody's, we even give it to babies and pregnant women. And so to really make that platform, mRNA, you've already seen perhaps uh, they've come out with an mRNA treatment for uh, heart injury. Yeah, okay? unbelievable. That, and right. animals so, too, so, livestock. Yes. So, so, right. So number one, there was that component to it. Number two, um, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist. The only, during this pandemic, it's proven one thing. The only thing, by the way, the only difference between a conspiracy theorist and a fact teller is about three months. Okay. Because <laughs> that's worry, about, everyone on this podcast knows by now. Yeah. So, it's so crazy. that, that, yeah, that's the difference. But, um, so number one, there's the mRNA component. I, there are many people, again, um, you know, who believe that the world not only would benefit from, but must have a significant decrease in, in population. Um, there are people, and, and this isn't, again, uh, Kelly Victory's opinion. These people are on the record, not once, not twice, but over a period of decades saying so. People like Bill Gates, George Soros, many of the people at the World Economic Forum Rockefeller believe the Foundation. only, right, the only way that we will save the planet is by a significant decrease in population. Um, there's lots of ways that decreases in population can happen. Uh, you know, wars, famine, pandemics, vaccine Which happen to all be coinciding at one point right, right it, now, it, which is bizarre. Right. <laughs> Correct. So um, I, I would be hard-pressed to think that, you know, that that isn't a component of this because it doesn't make sense otherwise. Um, we are being asked to do things as citizens, as individuals that are not only unprecedented, but absolutely nonsensical when it comes to the science. The idea of vaccinating children 
and I use the word vaccine even quite loosely in this context, but vaccinating children, you're talking about vaccinating a group of people whose risk from the actual disease is so low, it is so close to zero, is really to be indistinguishable from zero. You're asking them to be vaccinated with a shot that won't stop them from getting it, won't stop them from spreading it, and only has efficacy for a matter of months so that they would need two to three shots perhaps a year. I mean, this, this is, to say that this is uncharted territory is the understatement of, of the, what are we talking about? You have, there was never a study done uh, on kids. We have no idea what the long-term side effects are. There is almost zero safety data. So anyone who says, We've already said they aren't effective, so safe and effective doesn't make sense. You can't say they're safe. We have no safety data. Uh, I asked people early on, I said, great, show me the 24, 36, 48-month safety data, let alone 72 months, but at least give me the 48-month safety data. They said, well, we don't have that. Right, you don't have that. We have no, there's a reason why the average vaccine takes six to eight years to come to market if it ever makes it at all. There are a heck of a lot of viruses for which doctors, scientists have never created a safe and effective vaccine. I don't know, things like herpes, Coxsackie virus, norovirus, not because we haven't tried. You don't think we've tried to make a vaccine for herpes? You know, haven't or the, norovirus? Hasn't that, hasn't that same cabal tried to make it for like HIV, AIDS? Was yes, that the big a, thing? Exactly. We've, there are lots of viruses that were around a whole lot longer than COVID. So vaccinology isn't just a, oh, quick, let me retreat to the lab and whip up a quick vaccine and, <laughs> and roll that out. It, and let me say also, because I haven't said it on your show yet, I am not anti-vaccine. Anything but I've been called a vaccine zealot in the past because I have spoken and written prolifically on the importance of vaccine programs. I've personally had more vaccines than the average person because of the areas of the world in which I've chosen to travel and what I do for a living. So I've had, you know, yellow fever vaccines and have, you know, vaccines that most people haven't had. It's these vaccines, it is risky business and it takes years many times to understand what are the long-term effects? Things that we hadn't anticipated. Effects on fertility, for example, re, you know, reproductive health, neurologic development, autoimmune diseases, and on and on. So the idea that all of a sudden we're going to start injecting, it'd be one thing early on in the, in the vaccine program. I said, look, if my parents were still living in their 90s in a nursing home, I might have said, I might have been one of those people saying, look, this thing, this shot's barely been tested, but if you get COVID, you're you're done. It's going to be your last thing you get, okay? So it's probably worth trying this. And also, I wouldn't be worried about long-term, you know, reproductive issues with my 90-plus-year-old mother or whether or not she's <laughs> going to develop, you know, cancer five years from now, you know. So you, you make different choices. The risk-benefit calculation would have been very different to Ray a 90-year-old in a nursing, you know. Pretty much. But but now, two things. Now, we're, you know, we're two and a half years into this. The variants are very, very mild, okay? Even 90-year-olds in nursing homes aren't dying of it because it's so mild. And we always knew from the very beginning that 
not everyone was at equivalent risk. We knew that it was largely the elderly and the infirm and people specifically with obesity. Obesity is the single biggest risk factor other than age, and there's nothing you can do about your age. But they never, that's another anomaly, another thing that stuck out that heightened my awareness that something else was going on. Why are public health officials not talking about all of the things people should be doing in addition, okay, get, get vaccinated, but why are they not talking about obesity? Why are they not talking about supplementing vitamin D? We knew within months, like three, that vitamin D deficiency was strongly linked to a bad outcome with COVID. And given that 80% of African-Americans are vitamin D deficient, 50% or so of Latinos, and more than 30% of Caucasians are vitamin D deficient in the United States. Yet they weren't talking about something as simple as go to the CVS, the grocery store, and start supplementing vitamin D and zinc and you know, reminding people of doing the things that actually enhance your immune system, regular exercise, adequate sleep, stress mitigation. And on, no, it was all just, you know, wear a mask, stay six feet apart, bathe in Purell and, and, you know, hide <laughs> in the basement. Um, that's not public health. That's fear mongering. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, it, it's so bizarre. I mean, we're talking about something that just happened. So, well, I do want to, uh, before I get to that though. So you said that you want, they wanted to make MRNA, you know, the platform, the technology, mm -hmm. a household name that that is, the, why, I didn't understand why MRNA, what, what, what is it about? Is it just because they've well, been working I, on a long time and money's been invested or what, yeah, well, what is so yes, crucial about it? Because you can manipulate people's, you know, you can make, you can manipulate what people create, what their DNA, what their cells create. You can get people to generate all kinds of things. I think they look at it as a, if we can crack this nut, if we can make people accept this, that we're going to do it, giving them a genetic, actually a, you know, a genetic therapy, a gene therapy. We'll call it a vaccine, but we're essentially getting people to roll up their sleeves and willingly take a gene therapy. We can do anything then. We can modify people to get them to do lots of things. Um, and so this was like a know, beta change. test. I, I think, I think this was a way of saying the first, you know, the first you can have all the greatest technology in the world, but if people won't accept it, if right. people won't take it, it doesn't help. You know, it's kind of like you can look at anything, you know, soil and green or artificial, you know, fake meats, you know, whatever Petri dish grown hamburger or whatever it is. You can do all of these things, but it's useless if people won't accept it. So they knew they had the technology well down the path. They've been working on it for well over a decade. But I think this was the beta test to getting people to accept it. But there, there, it's kind of a, I don't know if it's a paradox, if that's the right word for it, or catch-22. Uh, so everyone accepted it, but as they keep rolling, I feel like they kind of overstepped their – they overplayed their hand, which is you see with the bivalent booster and each – you know, they're on like the 800th booster or whatever it is, which, by the way, wouldn't you question that perhaps it's not a vaccine <laughs> if you keep getting another – it's just really wild. But um, it, now people aren't taking it. So is it kind of what now? I feel like they can roll out anything and people aren't going to accept it. And it's going to have to be by force. Uh, do you think it kind of well, backfired? Well, I think it backfired in in really 
tragic ways, because my concern as a, a public health specialist is that people are, have, will develop vaccine hesitancy for the tried and true vaccines. This is going to paint a, you know, leave a bad taste in people's mouths about vaccines if they don't really think, no, it's not all vaccines. It's in the same way that people, because I'm saying something about this vaccine, I'm a quote, anti-vaxxer. No, I'm actually able to understand the difference. But in the same way, I don't want people to think, oh, I'm not going to get my kid vaccinated for chickenpox or measles or mumps or rubella or, you know, any of that stuff, polio, because, you know, back, look what happened. Maybe they'll, you know, end up with myocarditis. No, we, 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 no, we don't have issues with myocarditis and new onset seizures and cancer and blood clots from other vaccines. It's these vaccines. But my concern is that this was such a disaster from a public health perspective that, you know, people will turn their backs on all of that. And God help us when we, the next thing happened, because there will be a next thing. There, I, I can't tell you what it is, if it'll be an infectious disease or some other public health crisis, when we need the public to listen to us, to take heed, to follow our guidance. And unfortunately, I fear that most people are gonna say, what a bunch of buffoons, I'm not listening to anybody who has, you know, public health expert or public health official uh, after his or her name, you know, and, and, you know, pound sand. I'm not I'm not listening. So I think it's backfired in a lot of ways, whether or not people will accept. You know, that said, there are a heck of a lot of people who are still excited to get their vaccine, you know, the boosters. And you point it out to them. You say, look, you know, Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC five vaccines. She just got her her fifth, her bivalent one, you know, two weeks before she, you know, was home sick as a dog with, wait for it, COVID uh, no. for her third time, third time. She's had it three times. I'm thinking, you know, at some point, how many, you know, I, I know you want to fill that whole punch card and get your free Slurpee, but <laughs> it's not really worth it. At some point, how many shots into this and how many cases of COVID into this do you want to be before you say, you know what, maybe I was duped. Maybe this isn't working the way that I, you know, was led to believe it would work. They're telling you not to like trust your eyes and your ears and it's working. Isn't right. it kind of that Orwellian thing that's going on? Absolutely. I mean, they're <laughs> asking you to don't, don't look at what's in front of you. And one of the questions I have is really, you know, those of us who are paying attention, uh, you know, are pointing out things like, you know, we're having huge upticks in, quote, sudden death, so much so that they made up a new acronym and acted as if it's, you know, sudden adult death syndrome. So that okay? did exist before? No. Oh, okay. That Sorry. I didn't know. made up. No, that's uh, totally made up in the last, what, six months. Sudden oh adult God. death syndrome. You're, I defy you to find that anywhere in the literature prior to 2022. Made up. Okay, so don't look at that. We know that the data... There's been a 40% increase in all cause mortality that was reported out by the life insurance companies. The life insurance companies on January 1st of this year were freaking out because so many people were dying at such a higher rate, young people, that the life insurance companies were concerned that they couldn't pay out the premiums. Then we have the data from the military that shows we had the three military, quote, whistleblowers. We call them whistleblowers. We, in the past, we used to just call them honest doctors. Now they're called whistleblowers. But 
We know that they were seeing massive increases in heart attacks, strokes, fertility issues, new onset seizures, Bell's palsy, lots of things. We have the data from the health insurance companies replicating that saying, yes, we're seeing massive increases. Rather than everybody, you know, looking at and saying, you know, wow, what, what was new in 2021? What, what was new that could be accounting for this? Instead, people are going, oh, it's, you know, global warming. It's, uh, you know, the stress of the pandemic. Um, it was, I mean, don't you think someone should really be looking at the millions of reports to VAERS to say, you know, wh why isn't the CDC? It's the CDC's job to look at that data. It's, that was their system. The CDC put the VAERS system in place 24 years ago as an early warning system. It was supposed to be the proverbial canary in the coal mine. You know, let us know as early as possible if there's a, what we call a signal in medicine, something, an uptick in something where we should say, whoa, you know, what's going on here? Maybe Let's we look should into look it. into this. Right. Yeah. Instead, they have turned a blind eye and ridiculed anybody who in threat, they threaten physicians. If you dare to report something to theirs, there, there are consequences. You get nasty letters and threatening letters from the medical board. Uh, you know, the hospital's telling you, don't report this. So we're now not supposed to report to the CDC's own, you know, reporting system. So it was created for this exact thing. Correct. In 1976, when the swine flu vaccine was rolled out, it was pulled from the market after there were 25 reported possible associated deaths. It was pulled from the market for 25. 2,500? 25, 25 total. Oh, two five. Two five. Two dozen How does that half. compare to this? Two, you know, two, 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 you know, two dozen. Uh, you're right. We had thousands of reports to VAERS within months of this vaccine being pulled out. Now we're in the millions worldwide of reports of reported possible deaths related to this vaccine, okay? And they are out there today saying, safe and effective, safe and effective, you know, get your booster. It's I mean, unconscious. This can't go on. So, okay, this can't go on forever, although it's gone on much <laughs> further than I ever thought it could. So it's really crazy. But um, you have an expertise in, you know, pandemic response and, you know, exactly what's going on right now. Right. We're, well, first of all, how important or is it not important? You know, you hear people float around things like a Nuremberg 2 and, and how important right. is an accountability like that in order to write the course? Or is, how would you start correcting this path and putting us actually on the path? What, well, where where I would think, you start? I, I think in accounting uh, is absolutely critical. We cannot allow this ever to happen again. And no one is going to, it's never going to be right. We will never regain the public trust and we won't heal the huge divide in this country until we have that. We need to absolutely not only clear house at these at these agencies like the CDC and the FDA, but we need to create an entirely different platform for oversight with them. We need to absolutely expunge the perverse incentives and the conflicts of interest between physicians, organizations like governing organizations and big pharma. Uh, 
You know, when you read a scientific study, and I don't, you know, part of the problem here is that most people don't read the studies themselves. And they, frankly, they don't have the training and, and knowledge to be able to read them and dissect them and understand um, the scientific method, understand really all the confounding factors. And I can't expect your average non-scientist to do that. But it's always been interesting to me that the conflicts of interest are at the very bottom of the, the very end of the art of the, you know, study. You might have a 25-page study, and at the very bottom, it tells you the, you know, the possible conflicts of interest. You know, this this author, you know, is a spokesperson for Merck, and this person, you know, used to work for Pfizer. As far as I'm concerned, that should be emblazoned above the title of the study. It should be the That's very good, yeah. first thing, and then I'll decide if I even want to read it. Because once I know what the conflicts of interest are with the authors, I, I have nothing else. Yeah, thanks. That's really good. That's a really okay. good idea. Start with that. But we need to expose this because if people had any idea, you know, and as I said, unfortunately, you know, most people don't understand how lousy many of the studies are. They don't understand what gets cherry picked and what doesn't. You know, in, in the past, up until this pandemic, robust, vigorous debate between physicians was the standard. It's a cornerstone of medicine you know, respectful, but vigorous debate. We didn't fear it. We didn't run from it. All of a sudden now, you can only have one opinion, and it's the government opinion. And if you question anything, and let's face it, the government's been wrong a lot of times. You know, uh, I'm old enough to remember drugs like thalidomide that we gave to pregnant women to help them with sleep. And, and we had an entire generation of, you know, babies born without limbs as a result of thalidomide. Okay. The government isn't always spot on. The CDC and the FDA make a lot of mistakes. And it's up to practicing physicians to bring that information forward and go, whoa, 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 here's what I'm seeing, you know, warning, warning. Um, if you only can say, you know, the narrative, and we're going to have these fact checkers, and we're going to have now a World Health Organization, you know, body that's going to work with YouTube to certify whether this doctor or that doctor is a truth teller and whether or not they have, you know, the stamp of approval from the World Health Organization, then let me tell you, you don't need doctors anymore. Just hand out the pamphlet to people from the FDA and the CDC and say, here's what they say. You don't need to go see Dr. Victory because the answers are right here. The, the you know, some, some doctor, Anthony Fauci, who's never seen you, knows nothing about you, doesn't know your family history, doesn't know your personal health history, doesn't know your concerns or your, you know, how tolerant you are of risk, has already made the decision for you. It's right here in the book. So there you go, Jonathan. You don't, you just saved yourself all that time. You know, where, where does this, where does this, so the YouTube, so, so yeah, I, I, that was an email or was on someone, oh, tweeted, I think, or something like yeah. that. And it was, um, they're putting out, so basically what's going on is they are working with the WHO, who has been proven in the past two years to be extremely trustworthy and to never question because <laughs> they have a perfect record. And Dr. Tedros, who I don't, who's not even a medical physician. Correct. I, I, we don't even know if the PhD is legitimate, but who knows? Uh, I think he's the head of like a terrorist group instead. He bizarre. is. He's a terrorist, but <laughs> yeah, he's the he's the bad guys. But like in his yeah, so that's the whole thing. But in this case, they had a change of heart and they actually love everybody. And uh, on YouTube, they are actually gonna have this algorithm pick up certain physicians that are approved by them that are you know trusted sources for like medical information, and then they're right. gonna be seen by more people on YouTube for to get their information. Where does this go? 
Well, what happens? N- n- nowhere good. As you said, I mean, the WHO is its own problem. They are the long arm of the Chinese Communist Party, and they always have been. Uh, Dr. You know, Tedros Ghebreyesus uh, is not a medical doctor, and he is not a good guy. Um, I, there's a reason why uh, under the Trump administration, again, love him or hate him, we left the WHO, and I think with good cause. Um, they are power hungry, and they are answering to a, a different uh, a different dictator than than public health. Um, I think that we, I, I really see um, a parallel medical system getting formed in the United States. Um, doctors who are saying, I am, I am not going to be held hostage by the medical boards. I will not practice with a gun to my head. I will not allow the insurance companies in big pharma to lead me around, you know, by a ring through my nose. And we will see a different version, I think, a two-tiered system and a parallel system where physicians say, I, I don't accept insurance. Um, I essentially have a concierge type practice. Um, I will take care of you and we'll make our own decisions. And th- you're going to see, I, I believe, a splitting in healthcare. It will take some decades to reform, but I think it's what has to happen. Um, and, and people will be able to make their own decision whether or not they want to go to the more, uh, holistic family. And I mean that not in terms of alternative medicine, but the more, the family doctor, or surgeon who doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't hold all the board certifications because they don't need it. What they are is well-trained, well-educated, highly experienced, and they are making the right decisions on behalf of their patients without being under the, the control of uh, alternate forces. Oh, so you think the whole system, even like the way that you get, you know, like the schooling and like the whole, yeah, the whole yes. thing. I think people, yes, I think there will be different medical schools. I think there will be a totally different system. And, and is I think there even people, an alternative besides well, that? Well, I, I mean, this is what to people are it. talking. Yeah, no, I, well, I, I don't see it getting fixed otherwise. I mean, we, there is, you know, the American Medical Association, you know, at this point, I think the last I heard, 18% of all physicians belong to the AMA. Everybody thinks that it's, uh, you know, the power that be. We, they are nothing but a political hack group. Um, they are highly, highly bought by big pharma uh, and other forces. They, are, they do not look out for patients, and they sure as heck don't look out for doctors. So the American Medical Association is a joke. Uh, the Federation of State Medical Boards that's been highly, highly involved in censoring doctors is a private organization. It's a private oh. organization run out of Texas. It's hard as hell to even find their address, let alone a telephone number, but they wield incredible power. Um, and I think, as I said, this will go to the Supreme Court. The, some of these sanctions will go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court will ultimately determine that if you are licensed in a particular state, then you answer to the state board, not to this federation of state medical boards that's a private entity uh, hiding out in Texas. But you need to expose all of this first. You need to expose all of the corruption, um, the money, you know, follow the money. You need to expose all of this before you can rebuild it. So the first thing that needs to happen is ripping off the, uh, you know, the, the shroud of secrecy here, exposing all of this to a heck of a lot of sunlight and disinfecting from there down and then thinking about rebuilding it. What does that look like exactly? Is that like a court case you're envisioning or something with the court of public yeah, opinion? Oh yeah, like, what I does think it's it actually take, look like? 
I think it'll take many years, but it'll be, you know, people going to the courts um, and people, you know, exposing, you know, really what the state medical boards have done, what the different medical associations have done, the different colleges have done. Um, and, and really until this gets unwound, it's not going to be a quick fix. It's going to be a very, very painful time, uh, in medicine and in healthcare, I think for the next probably two decades in the United States. So has this, uh, like centralization of power, I don't know what else you call it. Has this been something that all of a sudden 2020, like, whoa, I didn't even realize this. Or have you noticed, cause you've been practicing for 30 years, 30 plus years. Did you notice this creep slowly or was it just all of a sudden? Oh, oh my yeah. God, I had no oh, idea. No. You know, I've seen it happening over time it, in medical education, um, all of this, the, you know, the big pharma, this has been going on for decades. It became overwhelmingly, you know, obvious to pretty much everybody during this pandemic. Right. But no, this didn't just start. And it starts subtly, you know, physicians in training, the physician training that they get now is vastly different from what I got 30 plus years ago. Um, they teach way more social justice stuff. There's way more concern uh, for things like learning electronic medical records and billing modules and making sure that uh, there's equity in healthcare uh, rather than things like, can you do a physical exam? Um, it, today's physicians are far more wedded to uh, lab tests, diagnostic tests, making sure that you got a CAT scan and an MRI and multiple other tests that they can evaluate and bill for, by the way, than being able to say, you know, listening to a, a great history. When I was uh, learning, you know, they would tell you, if you take a good history, you're 80% of the way to knowing the diagnosis and you're physical exam should get you, you know, the other 20%. You could probably do most of it without ever ordering a test by simply taking, you know, good history and physical. Now, they, they don't even bother doing the history. They, they may or may not do part of a physical. They just order a boatload of tests uh, and then wait for the lab, you know, the, the results to come in and they read the results. And um, it, it's a very different thing. So it's been going on and that's been going on for decades and very worrisome. Um, again, I think it's about really making the physician far less central to this. Uh, they started using the concept of physician extenders, you know, lots of, phys you know, physician's assistants and nurse practitioners and then technicians and people to say like, look, if you just order the right tests, you really don't need, um, you know, the physician, you don't need anybody in there who's got an opinion. You know, they're trying to really make it, if we do what the government decides is best for you. Um, and unfortunately, that is the nature of medicine in a lot of other countries. Um, you know, up until probably the last five years, I would have said that healthcare in the United States is the best on the planet. Um, I, I don't feel that way any longer. Um, and a lot of it is simply because of there's a third party now in the exam room, and it's the government, and they weren't invited in. Uh, I, it's, I, so what you were saying, I think it's been building up for, at least from what I've seen, like it even was like decades and decades ago with like the Rockefeller Foundation infiltrating mm -hmm. like the, the medical institution or, uh, you know, like big pharma getting into medical, just crazy. It, right. It, it builds up for a long period of time, but then all of a sudden it just hits you in the face. But especially if I'm just, you know, not somebody who practices medicine and observe right. it, it's almost like bewildered. It's just like shocking. So You've been talking to tons of tons and tons and tons of people over the past few months or years um, and be very active right now as of today. 
Are you actually becoming more hopeful than ever that these parallel systems are being built, that we're heading in the right direction as opposed to, you know, a year ago, six months ago? Or you kind of feel like we're still at a standstill and we don't know which way we're going to go? I, I think we're still at a standstill. I think people are still shell-shocked right now, to tell you the truth, uh, because it's still unfolding in real time. Many people, including me even someday, there are days where I say, this can't be happening. Right. I, I, this, this can't be ha- We cannot be doing this. You know, when doctors start losing their medical licenses for questioning authority, you know, North Korea's got nothing on us at that point. I mean, you're saying, you know, this... So I think people are still too shell-shocked. People are starting to coalesce in each egregious action that is taken, whether it's, you know, Dr. McCullough being stripped of his uh, medical or his uh, internal medicine uh, board certification, those sorts of things. The next doctor who gets, you know, questioned by the board loses a medical license. The next thing they, they do, each thing that happens pushes us further towards people just saying, you know, we got we got to do something. But I don't think people have coalesced yet enough to have a plan. Uh, and I'm as close as I mean, they come yeah. to the groups who are doing that. And still, there's just so much um, turmoil in the ranks, so much um, just disbelief. Of, and, and everyone keeps thinking, you know, this has got to end. It's got to stop at some point. Um, and it, so far, I don't see it stopping. Well, that's understandable. But like the people that maybe a year ago wouldn't have accepted questions or even debate, you know, healthy debate, what you want right. to talk about, are people at least changing the corner of like, maybe I was wrong or like, you yes, know, sorry, something like that. That, I will tell you, that I do think is changing. It's a subtle but absolutely perceptible change in the atmosphere of people being willing to at least listen to something that they wouldn't have listened to you know, a year ago or 18 months ago, people saying, not necessarily wanting to read a medical study, but listening to having a more open mind saying, wow, maybe some of these things are vaccine related, or maybe we were lied to, or you got to be kidding. How, you know, now, you know, it, for example, you know, a judge just opined in New York state, for example, that the mandates were capricious and arbitrary. And he ruled that anybody who lost their jobs as a result of not being vaccinated, anyone who was terminated, get reinstated immediately with back pay. But that's they're appealing the kind of it. thing. Well, I, of course, they'll appeal it. It's the, nature, it's the nature of the beast. But we're starting to get the ruling. So if yeah. you're asking me, are there's a subtle change. More and more people have said to me, I mean, they won't say it publicly, but they'll say privately, I wish I'd never gotten vaccinated. I got the first two, but no way, no how am I getting the boosters? This is a bunch of crap. You know, I'm not doing it. So, yes, I think it's changing, but um, but there hasn't been a revolt yet. You know, we'll see what happens. But that's where it starts. It's just, it's just recognizing. Absolutely. It. I mean, that's, that's amazing to hear. And I feel like that's been, I feel like we've been on the up since August. I felt like the, the world didn't feel right like eight months ago. I don't know what's right. like just the energy. No, I don't know I think how to, I'm not. Yeah, I think I think it is changing. And, and part of it is, you know, most people wanting to get back to normal. I travel extensively. I'm on a plane, you know, a couple of times a week. And it still shocks me when I'm in airports, the number of people, particularly young, you know, young, thin, healthy appearing people with young kids who are walking around with masks on at the airport. And I'm thinking there are certain people who will never go back, who will always feel now more comfortable 
um, you know, swabbing down things with, you know, Lysol and wearing a mask. And that's tragic to me um, because it's really um, it, it's not necessary. It's, in fact, harmful. And we have an entire generation now of young children who have developed fear of others, who have a re think that there's a reason to have concern or be alarmed if they get too close to other people, who think that they are somehow protecting themselves or staying safe if they wear this mask. Um, really tragic. Uh, but some of that isn't going to go away. Um, it's the analogy I've made is if you've ever had a baby, you know that we, you wrap babies in swaddling, you wrap them very, very tightly, uh, and they lose the ability to use their own arms and legs, but they feel more secure, even though they've given up all autonomy. And we have a certain segment of our population for whom masks and social distancing and staying home and, you know, not going to what has become swaddling. They've lost all their autonomy, but they feel this sense of security in the fact that they are being, you know, taken care of, wrapped up tightly. Um, right. It's it's a sort of a pathetic statement about humanity, but it's very, very real. And I think we need to recognize it. And we don't even know the long term of this generation. Oh, hardly. Hardly. Yeah. And, and I'm actually having a child in January, so it's funny you said that. So that definitely, <laughs> yeah. it seems like well, a good timing after this happens. Yes. Know? Well, I I am looking. I, unfortunately, I'm looking at the clock, and I'm up against uh, the wall to yeah. to jump on an, an interview. I would be happy. I would love to come back though and talk about some of the other. There's such a multitude of um, of topics with regard to. I mean, I could spend, you know, a year just unwinding what happened with this uh, with this pandemic. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to jump off with you. Absolutely. So where where can people find you, whether it's social media or wherever you are these days? Yeah. What's the yeah. best place? Well, I, you know, I do gobs and gobs of, of media, uh, TV and, and shows like this one. But I'm on Getter. Uh, Getter is my only real social media platform. I'm at Kelly Victory MD. Uh, Kelly Victory MD on Getter. And then I'm part of the website earlycovidcare.org. And that's a website that's really worth going to even now. Uh, it's a website that's uh, together with Peter McCullough, Harvey Reich, Paul Alexander, uh, some really great thought leaders. Um, we make no money on it. It's not a money-making endeavor. It has gobs and gobs of resources. Jonathan, there's a huge library, you know, 200 plus articles on the inefficacy of masks, um, all the literature about early treatment for COVID, lots of information, including hundreds of articles about the vaccines. Um, there's information there for people who, on how to treat long COVID, uh, as well as vaccine-related injuries and ways to treat that. There are resources to find a doctor if you're looking to find a physician who can either prescribe medications um, or help work you through uh, issues, whether it's long COVID, uh, active COVID, vaccine injuries, and things of that sort. So earlycovidcare.org is my other uh, platform. Awesome. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it really means the world, and, and we really appreciate uh, it. Ton of people appreciate your work. So thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. Anytime. All right. Bye. Just hang on one second. Just